0: Dallas Wade recently asked 10 questions for Christians and challenged us to respond to him and post our video responses in the links. I know some others uh, like Braxton and, uh, and Pritchett uh, over at Trinity Radio did their responses. I know some of my friends over at the Menchables did their responses and some others have as well. Uh, but I wanted to give uh, my response to his 10 questions questions. So uh, if you want to hear my, my, my answers to his 10 questions, stick around and let's, uh, let's find out what's happening. Uh, in the meantime, why don't you uh, subscribe to this, click the bell so you'll get some updates, and share the content around uh, so that we can get some, some additional follows and spread some of this information uh, around to your friends, wherever you think it'd be helpful. That would be great. I would Appreciate it. If you're listening via podcast, thank you so much uh, for listening. Go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you got the podcast from. Uh, and for everyone, if you consider becoming a sponsor, uh, you can go to the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, Click the Become a Sponsor link there, or you can sponsor through Podbean. All right. With that uh, out of the way, let's dive right in to uh, Wade's 10 10- Questions. Now, I'm not as uh, technically savvy as some others, where I can play the videos back and forth. I'll get there. I'm getting used to OBS, so uh, eventually, hopefully, I'll get there. I am now going to be uh, going off some PowerPoint uh, presentations, and I'll be reading out his questions. All right. So, uh, Dallas Wade uh, asked ten questions of Christians, and to start, just by just by the way, um, it's it's interesting to know to note. Uh, there's some there, if you listen to Dallas Wade's video, which I'll link in the notes below, uh, there's this like ethereal space music going on in the background. Uh, I'm sure some people think it's weird. I, I think what he's doing, because I, I think he calls his episodes like worship services or something along those lines. He, he's, I think he's just trying to be funny and do some cultural uh, appropriation, so to speak. Uh, and, and (laughs) kind of like the, the piano music going behind the altar call. So, uh, I don't really mind, uh, too much. So, uh, with that, let's go ahead and dive right into these, uh, questions and we'll go from there. So question one, when did you become a Christian? When I was 20. All right. Question two, what convinced you that the Bible is true? Well, it depends on what you mean, Mr. Wade, by true. Do you mean inspired or inerrant? Do you mean that it's true in what it affirms? I mean, what what kind? What do, you, what do you mean by asking, is it true? This is an important distinction as the recent debate on capturing Christianity between Randall Rouser and Dan Barker highlighted. I'm going to take some of the reading of the question as somewhat vague. And before some of you atheists get upset and think that I'm strawmanning, I'm actually doing this in order to answer what I think his real interest is. And, and that's what convinced me that the Bible is something like the word of God or inspired, however, however I mean inspiration to be. I think if Wade sees this, he's, he'll appreciate that I'm taking it in that kind of broad way to give a genuine answer to the question because simply asking if it's true just isn't adequately clear because for something to be true, well, it depends on what you, what you actually have in mind. What does it mean for a book of poetry like in the Psalms to be true or apocalyptic literature to be true? Uh, that, that question just gets a little bit fuzzy. And so I want to answer what I think he's actually getting that. I could also split this into what made me think the Bible is the word of God as a question of my biography. That's, that is what convinced me at the time that I came to believe it, or as a matter of apologetics. Why do I think one ought to be convinced that the Bible is the word of God, given my 20 years of apologetics and academic training? Well, biographically, the answer is honestly, I don't know. I don't remember. That was about 20 years ago, and part of the problem is my own memory. I have a really bad memory for things like that, like worse than most people. I don't remember a lot of things from childhood or young adulthood or anything like that, not in like bad, like traumatized and repressed memories kind of way, but just my brain doesn't store those things like like others do. When I think back to my time of conversion, it was a long process of a couple of years to be honest, and since I wasn't raised in the church and didn't have all of the what I think even now are the weird Christian subculture things like practicing your testimony to make it kind of muscle memory or to know the date that you accepted Jesus or even some who say you have to say some type of prayer and invite Jesus into your heart or whatever that even means and that's your spiritual birthday or whatever. I just wasn't raised in a Christian context and so I, I didn't filter my conversion through those kinds of uh, rituals and traditions. So to be honest, I I remember some of the big things that really caused seismic shifts in my worldview and which God used to bring me to himself. But getting into the question of specific doctrinal belief formation, I honestly just don't remember what did it for me then. I, I mean, I could guess, but that would probably be more filtering kind of shadowy memories through my current beliefs about why one ought to believe it. So let's just get to that question. My main reason to to think that we ought to believe that the Bible is the word of God is just that Jesus did. Since I think we have warranted true belief in the existence of God, the reliability of the Gospels, and preserving the word and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, and the historicity of his death, burial, and resurrection, thus warranting belief in Jesus as the risen Son of God, then I take his beliefs and statements seriously. And he clearly believed that the Old Testament was the word of God, and he spoke as God come to us. Now, this could be developed way more, and there are other reasons, such as the uniformity of the teaching... The, the lack of any contradictions or errors in the Bible, despite centuries of people trying to do so, that every single time we can confirm any type of historical fact about the Bible, it does get confirmed or at least is left uh, ambiguous. There, there really hasn't been any type of falsification that happens. The unity of the Bible and the biblical message by about 40 different authors, more, I mean, more if we consider redactors who produce the canonical forms that we have in the Bible over two millennia on three continents and three languages through cultural upheavals and overturning of whole societies or the the wide-ranging impact, formative and life-changing power of the Bible on billions of people's lives, and and so on and so forth. So I could go on and develop the view and answer objections, but that would be a whole video series on its own. Here, the simple answer that gets us to about 95% of the way already is just the person of Jesus Christ and his seeing the scriptures as he saw them. So that's that. Oh, sorry, I forgot to go (laughs) through these. Question four, uh, or sorry, question three. Were you raised by Christians? Um, No, I was raised in a secular home. Neither parent was religious. We never read the Bible. We never went to church. I don't even really know and didn't know what the Christian, sorry, I didn't really know what the the Christmas carols were really all about until after I became uh, a Christian. So I always find it funny when atheists are like, oh, you were just indoctrinated as a Christian. And I always say, okay, well, you know, which one of my unbelieving parents who never read me the Bible, uh, I didn't even know we owned a Bible until I was like late in high school, uh, which one of them indoctrinated me to become a Christian? Uh, so that, that, that's always fun. All right, let's go to question four. Question four, is it possible for someone to believe that they have a real relationship with God when in fact they do not? Um, yeah, yes. I mean, in fact, I point this out to atheists all the time, and they actually don't like that answer, to believe it or not. Often they really want their testimony of their past life in, in the fold, so to speak, to be real and genuine and meaningful and so forth. They don't, they don't want to be viewed or thought of as frauds. And I, and I don't blame them, and I don't think they were frauds in any kind of unethical or deceptive way. But I often ask them what they think is happening when Christians believe. Are we deluded? Are we irrational? I mean, what is it? Whatever their view is about Christians... Well, then I just agree that was true of them, even if I don't agree that the cause for their condition was because God doesn't exist. So were they sincere in their beliefs? Probably. But if they want to say that religious people who they think are wrong are wrong because they're deluded or irrational, then sure, they had a sincere belief, but they were deluded or irrational in their prior religious belief. Don't we agree about that they were that they that they were uh, uh, delusional or irrational? We disagree if I'm delusional or irrational, but we agree about it for them, don't we? I mean, we agree on that. They 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 were not in a real saving relationship with God. So yes, it is possible for someone to believe that they have a real relationship with God and be wrong. But then so what? Here Wade doesn't bring up the follow-up question that would likely give this question its punch, which is, well, if they can be wrong, how can you know that you're not wrong? Well, because I do not have a defeater for my current beliefs. But is it possible I'm wrong? Well, that's question 10, so we'll, we'll get there. Okay, let's go to question five. This is a long one, so it's going to be uh, a couple different slides. There, This is his question with a long statement beforehand. There are tens of thousands of denominations of Christianity. They all disagree on either doctrinal or theological issues, many of which are seen as essential beliefs or actions for one to gain salvation. <coughs> Excuse me. How confident are you that your denomination is the correct one? Uh, and then he continues, If not in a denomination, how confident are you that your personal interpretation of the Bible, especially concerning its doctrine and theology, is the correct Interpretation. All right, let's go back to this initial question because this is mainly what I'm going to be answering. Um, And and to start off my answer, I just want to point out that this is just wrong. (laughs) I'm sorry, but on so many levels, it's wrong, and wrong in a way that shows Wade is doing the very kind of uncritical parroting of memes and cliché that he's heard over and over and over again. I mean, I've done a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to I'm not going to repeat all of it here. Although I'm going to have to do a bunch of it, but this is somewhat of an abridged version, and that—that that is, a, this is just a bad argument from atheists for several reasons. First, even if there were 40,000 denominations, or whatever the number is these days, and even if they were all an, a, a uniquely different in substantive ways, it just doesn't follow that the Christian with whom Wade is talking to believes that all or most of the other denominations that they don't belong to are not Christians or not real Christians or whatever. For example, I belong to a rather small American denomination within the conservative Reformed and Presbyterian tradition called the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA. I have no problem saying that I have Christian brothers and sisters, even theologically incorrect ones, who hold to the same core aspects of the Christian faith in nearly all other Orthodox denominations, be they Baptists, Anglicans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and so on so forth. We have some disagreements, to be sure, and they range in significance, with some being very important. But we can all stand shoulder to shoulder on the core aspects of the nature of God, the Trinity, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, namely expressed in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the commission to share the gospel to the world as much as we can before the return of Christ at the end of the present age. But second, the existence of disagreement doesn't really count as evidence against a view or in favor of its opposition. There are at least 10 different interpretations of quantum mechanics that are all consonant with the observable data. The fact that scientists disagree about the interpretation just isn't evidence against the existence of the quantum world, nor can the mere presence of disagreement with other views be an argument against any one view over the other. It also can't be used reasonably as evidence in favor of some position that would deny quantum mechanics altogether. So too, the existence of theological disagreement between denominations on largely tertiary issues just can't function as an objection to Christianity generally or in favor of atheism. Think about what would happen if we allowed this kind of argument uh, between worldviews more generally. Would the existence of mere disagreement between worldviews mean that all worldviews are wrong? Or could we, in a debate, tell one side that they're probably wrong simply because other worldview advocates disagree with them, but that ours isn't wrong even though other people disagree with us? I mean, of course not. That that just wouldn't work as an objection. That would just be trivially easy to dispatch. Third, when someone makes a claim like this, we should always check their sources. Now, the statistic for the number that appears uh, so often in these objections uh, comes from the World Christian Encyclopedia, what I'll call the WCE, by Barrett, Curian, and Johnson, put out by Oxford University Press in 2001. While it does come to a total of 33,000 denominations and growing, the problem with how atheists like Wade use the stat lies in how they understand what uh, what a denomination is compared to how the encyclopedia in question understood it. The atheists are using the objection to try and say that all of these denominations are just totally different and, and they don't agree and that each denomination is an instance of evidence for that. However, That's not how the WCE defines what a denomination is in their study. The WCE defines a denomination as follows, quote, "...a denomination is defined in this encyclopedia as an organized aggregate of worship centers or congregations of similar ecclesiastical tradition within a specific country." i.e. as an organized Christian church or tradition or religious group or community of believers within a specific country whose component congregations and members are called by the same denominational name in different areas, regarding themselves as one autonomous Christian church distinct from other denominations, churches, and traditions. As defined here, world Christianity consists of six major ecclesiastical cultural blocks. That's going to be important. We'll come back to that part of the definition. Six major ecclesiastical cultural blocks divided into 300 major ecclesiastical traditions composed of over 33,000 distinct denominations in 238 countries. Those denominations themselves being comp- composed of over 3.4 million worship centers, churches, or congregations, end quote. First, uh, from this definition, two things should be brought into focus about the w- how the WCE defined a Christian denomination. That is number one. Denominations are defined primarily geographically. That is, there may be one denominational body, but it's counted as a new denomination for every country that it operates in. I mentioned my denomination, the PCA, previously. The PCA has church plants in a couple dozen countries. This means that while the PCA is the main ecclesiastical body, and we all agree and adhere to the same confessional standards, literally we all agree doctrinally on on most things, this one denomination will be counted as a couple dozen denominations in the WCE survey. And as far as denominations go, the PCA is pretty small. This multiplication factor grows drastically when you start considering very large denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention or Roman Catholicism. Number two, the WCE has no problem classifying these 33,000 denominations into six what it calls ecclesiastical cultural blocks. This means that the vast majority of these fall into just a handful of buckets. Therefore, the main problem with how the atheists use the final number from the list is that they completely ignore the causal factors that lead to denominationalism in the first place. Often the dividing line between denominations or for why one church will plant a new one is geographical, or if there's a split and the new church is one that is unaffiliated with the prior church or has nothing, uh, has absolutely nothing to do with anything remotely like substantive theological differences. Denominations and churches are established as distinct from others because of factors like language barriers, cultural distinctives, personality differences, geographical differences, socioeconomics, missional purposes, like some are focusing on ministering to the poor, some to small families, stylistic differences, such as the kind of music played or even sadly, sadly the kind of carpet that got installed, as well as a whole host of other reasons. There are even microgeographical reasons since the advent of the automobile and the invention of the suburb for why denomination might have, uh, you know, why you might have a certain type of church on the east side of town and a different type of church on the west side of town. We no longer see new churches being called the first or second or third or fourth, whatever Methodist church of Townsville, but rather Curve or something trendy like that. This is because people now have options there are churches that missionarily cater to baby boomers or millennials and everything beyond and in between. While many bemoan this kind of consumeristic segmentation and its efforts on uh, and its effects on the church to water down and sometimes juvenileize the church, myself included, that's one of my criticisms. This just can't be denied as a real factor in the segmentation of denominations even in small geographical areas. Within my rather small town, there are approximately two dozen Baptistic churches that likely believe almost identical things as doctrines, at least on core essentials, and probably on most other things. But one may be a megachurch because of its more essential, uh, its more successful in implementing modern church growth tactics, while another fills the need for those with smaller starting families, but who may not like the faceless environment of a megachurch and another may appeal to those who want to sing hymns, and another those who want to sing contemporary songs, and so forth. Many of these churches are independent, which leads to the next issue with the atheistic use of the statistics. Sometimes, a certain strong view on the independent nature of the church, that is, uh, that, as a matter of course, these Christians may think that the most ethical and functional and pure way to organize and lead a church just is for it to be an independent church, free of any institutional structures that we've seen sometimes historically in the past can potentially lead to a lot of deeper division. We can see this further in the list of denominations that the WCE labels as independents, where over 8,000 thousand of the denominations listed just were unaffiliated independent Baptists. These churches would in most cases be almost doctrinally identical to what we would find in major um, American free conference of churches known as the Southern Baptist Convention. In addition, the Roman Catholic and Anglican churches are counted by their various rites and orders, even though they're all part of the one institutional denomination. Another problem with trying to use the list provided by the WCE the way the atheists do is that the list includes any group that self-identifies as a Christian church, such as the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, Oneness Pentecostals, Gnostics, Unitarians, various prosperity cults, divine science, the Swedenborgian, Universalist Unitarians, and so on and so forth. This means that groups which are historically not part of Orthodox Christianity have been identified as as cults multiplied by their various country counts and are included in the list to the tune of several thousands of them. I would then recommend, therefore, a taxonomy of Christian churches as follows. Here, I even am allowing the taxonomy to include self identification as a means for entry into the list. Number one, Roman Catholics. Number two, Eastern Orthodox Churches. Number three, Reformed or Lutheran Protestant. Number four, Armenian or Anabaptist Protestant. Number five, Pentecostal or Charismatic. Number six, Theologically Liberal. And number seven, Cultic or Marginal Churches. This is simply a far more accurate way of looking at the various denominational traditions in a way that best eliminates the noise from the statistics dealing with geographical, linguistic, cultural, stylistic personality and all those types of differences that actually drive most of the denominationalism that we observe in reality. The great irony of all of this for us who are watching the rise of atheist and secular groups and churches and Sunday assemblies is that they're already showing the early signs of denominationalism. They form in different areas because of geography. Several will form in the same area due to demographic or missional differences. Some are parts of broader national affiliations, and some are not. Some are active politically, and some want to be intentionally nonpartisan. Some are geared towards involvement in education in local schools and colleges, while some want to equip the everyman, and others just want to give a fellowship environment for unbelievers to gather and break bread together. We've even seen the start of church splits in groups like the Sunday Assembly and the Godless Revival. If we started counting atheist groups and assemblies like the WCE does with denominations, we would see that the early seeds of denominationalism on the global scale within secular groups. I wonder what will happen with a group that generally prides itself on independence and having no creedal foundation that ties them all together, such as atheists do, which we know serves as the unifying feature within Christianity. Give atheism 2000 years that Christianity has had but without any of the doctrinal standards or boundaries such as the church has had that ties most of us together, and I wonder just how many millions of denominations such a group will have. So, so much for the question about denominations. And how am I sure that my denomination is the correct one? This might surprise you, but I'm not. I have certain theological beliefs about things like baptism and the nature of the will which aren't core issues, that put me theologically in the Presbyterian or Reformed circles. And from there, I choose my denomination within that theological block for various reasons having to do with even more tertiary issues, some of which aren't even biblical questions. Like, why don't I go to a Korean Presbyterian church across town? Theologically, they're identical to my, ter- my current denomination. I didn't go because I don't speak Korean. Does that make my denomination the right denomination and theirs the wrong denomination? No, that would just be dumb. I also chose a church that was a, yeah, has a preaching style and a musical style that I personally resonate with better and, and, and grow from. Does that make my church right and other churches who sing different kinds of music or have teaching ministry that I don't personally connect with wrong? Of course not. That, I mean, that's just silly. Really, the only possible divide that we can find is between something like Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and what are called mainline liberals. Here, there is possibly some real substantive differences that start to creep toward the line of essential doctrines, but many of us have no problem seeing many of them as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we have some very serious criticisms of their view. And why do we believe one is right over another? Well, we use our minds we study the bible and the academics and the scholarly literature on the bible its backgrounds the different theological traditions the various ways that those can be understood and so forth we do the hard work of good hermeneutics and exegesis of the text and try to come to the best most informed understanding that we can <coughs> and based on what we believe is true we believe that it's probably true there's nothing magical there's, there's there I never understand this whole like well if you can't if you can't be absolutely certain then you got to scrap it all Well, no. I mean, we just do our good—that you know, the best work that we can. We come to what we think is probably true, and we go to a church that we think teaches that. But it doesn't mean that we think that everybody is, you know, false church or heretics or something like that. That's just not how it works. All right. Uh, Number six. The Protestant Bible contains sixty-six books. The Catholic Bible contains seventy-three books. The Ethiopian Orthodox Bible contains 81, and up until 1885, the King James Bible contained an additional 15 books known as the Apocrypha. The current Protestant Bible itself contains references to more than 30 books and letters that are not contained within it. Even Jesus Christ himself references and quotes many of these books. There have been many Bibles which have included many additional books or excluded many popular books due to disputes among Christian scholars. Altogether, there have been hundreds of Jewish or Christian books that at some point by some people have been considered to be inspired by God. How do you determine that the books in your Bible are all inspired by God? And how do you determine that the hundreds of books that are not in your Bible are not inspired by God? Okay, Uh, (laughs) let's get to this one. This one's also just... um, Let's just say misleading. Without going into all the problems that that are in here, a simple example of this is just that most of the additional books in the Catholic Bible, for example, just are the Apocryphal books. So when he talks about the Apocrypha and then the King James Bible added these 15 other books that are known as the Apocrypha, well, he's just double dipping into the same list. And even then, they're usually seen as a kind of lower canon. They're important to be sure, but they aren't the canon within the canon. So even when they're included, it's with an asterisk. Wade also restates the common false view that there were hundreds of books that have been included as canon or or thought of as inspired by God and not in my Bible. The interesting thing about this is that it's not only false, but we know exactly where the notion comes from in, pulp, in pop culture. This is right out of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, that, and there are approximately 0.000000% of scholars who believe it. In reality, there are the core 66 books, then the Apocrypha, which was even included in some Protestant Bibles during the Reformation. I mean, you all know that the Geneva Bible and the King James Bible just are Protestant productions, right? Well, and, and they're usually also included as a kind of second tier canon. That is, should they should be included as required reading for Christians because they're really helpful and informative and they help us understand what was happening in the intertestamental period and, and, and give some of the cultural backgrounds for what's happening in the New Testament. But the, the Apocrypha isn't typically viewed as being inspired by God or being God's holy word in the same way that the Course 66 books are. And then after that, there are a dozen or so books with wildly marginal support and don't really meet any of the criteria used by the early church to set the parameters of the canon to begin with. Without going into a full-on treatment of the canon, let me just say that to answer this question, false warts and all, I simply need to say that the books I'm most confident belong are the core 66 books. And even then, I, I, I mean, I honestly have some issues with, with the books like Jude and Second Peter where I'm not fully convinced, though I think there's a good enough reason there to warrant belief that they ought to be included. The, the fact of the matter is that all canonical views hold to the core 66 books, so there's just not really any dispute about that. Sure, we can discuss and debate about, about some of the others, and I'd be happy to consider them many of them, by the way, have problems, uh, of being in disagreement with either of the known canonical books. So that kind of rules them out, but sure. I'd be happy to discuss them. All right. For, for more actual in-depth uh, research on this, go ahead. I, I'd recommend, uh, Dr. Michael Kruger. That's K-R-U-G-E-R Kruger. Kruger uh, and his works on the canon. He, his book, The Canon Revisited is just a fantastic academic resource on this. And he also has a great blog called Canon Fodder, uh, which, which is, uh, just absolutely worth following. So, uh, this question question six is just uh, more misleading than than helpful all right question seven <clears throat> many times the bible refers to the sun as orbiting the earth many times the bible refers to the earth sitting on pillars the earth has ends the earth has a dome by the way in wade's thing there's like a whole bunch of bible proof texts going along with these the earth has ends the earth has a dome the earth has a has a length the sky has a height the earth does not move the sun moves and not the earth do you believe that the creation story in Genesis is also an instance where the Bible is not being literal or do you believe that it is literal uh, it is the literal account of the creation of the universe if so how do you determine that the Bible is being literal in this particular instance but not in other examples Okay I've done a whole series on Genesis 1 and a non-concordist hermeneutic when reading the Bible I'll even add to this list with to, to the list that Wade gives Uh, some stronger forms of his his objection that most atheists don't know, honestly, because they don't actually study these things. The example he gives can be dismissed rather easily by a simple appeal to phenomenological language, that is, language that's a description of how reality appears to the observer. I mean, we still use this today. We say the sunrise is at 6.07 a.m., or the sunset is at 8.15 p.m., but we don't actually think the sun is the thing that's rising. We're just describing it phenomenologically. That is from from how it looks from our point of view. This kind of response given by apologists honestly just dissolves most of these kinds of objections, if that's the the answer they want to go with. But there are others, um, examples that can be given that that type of phenomenological response doesn't work against. What about where God himself says that he'll place his law— not in our minds as our English Bibles uh, translate to help us with the concept, but it's, it, or, or and it doesn't say our, our hearts kind of metaphorically, but it says our kidneys or that we ought to love the Lord with all the strength of our bowels. Well, what do we do with that? This reflects an ancient Near Eastern view of physiology where the kidneys is where uh, what they thought we thought with. Uh, which we think is with the brain, uh, and the bowels was the seat of our emotions for them rather than what we think of as the heart, what we now metaphorically describe by the heart, I should say. So is the Bible wrong when it expressly says that God will place his law on our kidneys or that we should love the Lord with all the strength of our bowels? Is it wrong? No. In fact, I I mean, I press the same exact objection to Young Earth uh, friends who want to get their astronomy and geology from a literal reading of the Bible, but not their physiology. The issue, however, is not with the Bible, but with the modern idea that we should read the Bible as if it were a modern science book, and that we should get our science from it. That's called concordism, that the Bible is in concord with scientific statements and theories of the natural order in everything that it says. Sometimes it is sometimes it isn't so i take what's called a non-concordist understanding of the bible that believes that what we should understand text that we should understand text as the original audience would have and that god is and always has been incarnational that is he condescends to our level and speaks to us in our language, in our, in our, within our worldview. So when God wants to communicate with an ancient Near Eastern group of people, does he say, hey, 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 hold on, guys. Let me first educate you about quantum theory and wave particle functions and evolution. No, he communicates ideas to them by being what we would call missional, by contextualizing the message within their worldviews so that it would be actually understandable to them. I just don't think that's a problem for the truth of the Bible or for inspiration. I'd also challenge Wade's false dichotomy of something being either literal or metaphorical. I talk a lot about this in my Genesis series, so go back and check that out there. And to be fair, I honestly don't blame Wade for for repeating this false dichotomy. From what I know of Wade, he came out of a very fundamentalistic and anti-intellectual Christian background, and often those types of churches will push these, these very same types of very flat context list. Just, you know, the, the, the just me and my Bible in the garden alone, scholars can go to hell. It's either literal or allegory kind of readings of the Bible. You know, you either take Genesis literal or you're, you know, you're taking it allegorical and you're a liberal and all this kind of nonsense. This is often why academics, both Christian and not, point out that atheists are so often really just about as fundamentalistic in their understanding of how we even should read the Bible as their fundamentalist Christian counterparts because that's what they were raised in. They just don't know any different. The problem is that instead of just rejecting the method and coming to a more robust and sound treatment of how we should read and handle and understand ancient texts because they think, uh, because they think of the fundamentalist view of the Bible as silly, they think all of it must be silly. And so they don't study it. And so therefore they continue to perpetuate the character, which makes them think it's even sillier, which makes them think they have less reason to study it, which reinforces the silliness. And down and down and down the toilet bowl, it spirals. Uh, I highly recommend studying (laughs) if you're going to make dogmatic statements about things. Okay, number eight. In your opinion, what are the three best proofs that the Bible is true? Proof of the Bible, not theism. Well, I basically answered that back in question number two. So for the sake of time, let's just move on since you can go back and review that answer if you want to. Okay, number nine. Is it better to A, silence the critics and avoid listening to criticism, or B, engage with critics and refute criticism? Which of these two options do you find to be the approach that most Christians take? Well, B is the, is the better option. It's better to engage critics. In fact, I take it that any Christian or any apologist who has taken up the mantle of responding to Wade's questions just are engaging with their critics. So this is a strange question to the very people who he is expecting will engage with him as a critic. And and as for which option is the most common for Christians, I doubt it's either of those. Honestly, most Christians just go to work. They spend their time with their families. They live their lives without really delving into these issues. I don't think they're avoiding or engaging. Here, the only exception that I would give is someone who just really isn't equipped to handle the criticisms, to just be cautious and to try and find good resources to help them better understand these topics. I talk to a lot of atheists who will say things like that they fell away from Christianity after honestly investigating it. But when you ask them, they were like 7 or 13 or... 16. And, and by investigate, they mean that they asked some random questions to their one pastor or their Sunday school teacher, who is probably like a, like a college student uh, or, you know, a mom, you know, a homeschool mom or to their own parents. And they didn't get a convincing answer from them in that, in that one or two instances. And so they scrapped it all. Then they, they went right to the warm embrace of Dawkins and Hitchens and online atheist YouTubers because they had this newfound identity as an atheist, if they even did that early. I mean, I doubt seven-year-olds are actually doing that. But as they, they get older, they're like, well, now I self-identify as an atheist. Who should I read? Dawkins and Hitchens and <coughs> Rationality Rules and all that kind of stuff. And now they just parrot those memes rather than the Christian memes. They've gone from one anti-intellectual blind fideism to another. My question for, for atheists here is, if you converted or if your explanation or exploration of these issues, have you honestly went and made an effort to really study the best academic literature on any one of the subjects? By the way, there's not like a singular subject, the Bible, or Christianity, or I mean, there are so many. You you look at the topics we've covered. I mean, there's there's philosophical belief. There's theism. There's different arguments, you know, for the existence of God. There's metaphysics, epistemology. There's Bible within the Bible. There's Old Testament, New Testament, hermeneutics, biblical theology, systematic theology, uh, textual criticism, manuscript you know, manuscript tradition. I mean, you can go into there's 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 you know libraries dedicated to each one of these sub disciplines. So before, you know, you can, you can make a dogmatic statement about the Bible generally, but you haven't studied any of these things. I mean, I'm honestly just surprised that I'm still surprised when I meet atheists who are so incredibly cocksure and dogmatic about things about the Bible or that Jesus is a myth and there's no evidence for God. And all they've ever really done is just watch some YouTube videos in the basement and read some atheist blogs talking about Christian blog. You know, they haven't, they haven't actually read the Christian blogs, whether even they're good or bad, but they've read atheist blogs talking about the Christian blogs. You know, here, here we're dealing with third, fourth, fifth hand interactions. I mean, think about your response. If someone like me asked you before you mock and say, uh, you know, Genesis, you know, Genesis one, have you read any of the academic literature on it? Have you picked up the robust exegetical commentaries on it that deal with the original languages and the the textual tradition and the the literary styles and the historical and cultural context of the composition of the text? If your answer is no, or 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 especially if you mock and ridicule the question, which is honestly very you know very very common, I, I have people you know I I don't go and pick up you know the the best commentaries and academic studies defending fairies. I mean, okay, guess what? That doesn't exist, right? I mean, you have you have whole academic traditions and departments at, at universities like Yale, Oxford, Harvard, Princeton. I mean, you, you have world class scholars, some of the best thinkers throughout Christ- throughout throughout the world throughout history, write and believe about these things. Nobody's doing that for fairies or the flying spaghetti monster. I'm just not. I, I'm sorry, they're not. So, if, so if you're just going to mock and ridicule that way, then then I'd ask if you like. Do you have no cognitive different you know dissonance? Do do you really think that you've done any objective thinking on the topic? I mean chances are you may just be one of those who jump from one fundamentalist camp to another and you haven't actually done any type of research or understanding. You haven't actually changed your your epistemic structures, your 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 way that you do inference and and thinking when you went from Christian fundamentalism to atheistic fundamentalism you likely actually still think about these things along the same railroad tracks so to speak so i would just challenge you if you're one of those you may want to you know take some stock about you know how you've actually studied these things okay last question number 10 are you open to the possibility that your beliefs might be wrong yeah i mean of course i am actually in debates i commonly i commonly say this cuz cuz uh, you know atheists will, will typically say things like oh you know, <clears throat> you know you can't you can't do a universal you know negative it's you know it's impossible to prove that god doesn't exist and, and i mean I, I commonly say well i mean that's just wrong there are all types of ways that you could falsify my view yeah, i here 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 you know here's five or six i could just rattle off different ways that you could falsify my view Right? I, I mean, I do this commonly in, in debates and online. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and, and, I've, and I've actually done episodes to show that a lot of atheists, the way they hold their naturalism and their epistemology in a kind of scientific way, they actually make their view unfalsifiable. They insulate it such that nothing could ever rise to the level of something that would falsify it. But, but I don't think that we have much in life, to be honest, that we have something like absolute or Cartesian certainty about. My religious beliefs are just no exception, but here I'd say some of that depends on what my beliefs Mr. Wade is thinking about. I don't have the same level of confidence on a wide variety of my beliefs that I have, say, as an atheist, or sorry, as a theist, or a Christian, or a conservative Christian, or a Reformed Presbyterian conservative Christian. I don't have the same level of confidence, for example, on my views about the inclusion of Jude in the canon as I do that the god of classical theism exists. I don't have the same level of confidence in my belief that the pericope adultery, or the story of the adulterous woman in John 8, is a later interpolation added to the Gospel of John, as I do that Jesus existed, ministered, and died by crucifixion, was buried and rose again on the third day, and so on. So I'm of course open to the possibility of being wrong, and I'd I'd be happy to talk with anyone who'd like to try to prove I'm wrong. By the way, most atheists will say things like, I don't have a burden of proof, I don't have to give evidence that you're wrong. Okay, but if you're gonna ask me the possibility my beliefs are wrong, I mean, don't you wanna to try to present some type of defeater to show why my beliefs are wrong? So sure, of course, my beliefs have changed and refined a lot over the last 20 years of being a Christian and constantly reading the, the, the literature and challenging my own views by, by going through the academic literature of, of different viewpoints and different perspectives from, from atheistic scholars to, to liberal scholars and critical scholars to conservative scholars and, and, and everything in between. But I've also been doing this for 20 years, and I have been refining my views and had already had my major, and I mean major, periods of doubt. And so it's just really unlikely that a YouTube atheist who hasn't done any study whatsoever and is just parroting other online infidel-type atheists is going to present some type of groundbreaking argument uh, that disproves my beliefs. I mean, that's just probably not gonna happen. So, as the old saying goes, I mean, if they had better arguments, they'd use them? So thanks so much for joining. Uh, As always, I appreciate you uh, coming here. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, uh, please feel free, leave them in the comments below after you subscribe and share. Uh, But leave your comments uh, below. You can always come by uh, the the blog, freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Check out all the the resources there. Or why not join the conversation with me and others uh, at the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining. Good night, and God bless.